Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Mary Peterson, a PhD student at the University of Hamburg. We'll be talking primarily about her research on Spinoza and free will, as well as her thoughts on the problem of sexual harassment in academia. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Mary, you can find her email address listed in the show notes. Mary Peterson, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Thank you for having me. So how did the process of choosing a research topic look for you? I understand that you're at the University of Hamburg in Germany. And in Germany, are you expected to have a, an area of research in mind from day one? Yes. So the application process is a little bit different in Germany than the UK or the US. I reached out to my supervisor directly and met with him and floated the idea for the project. But the project is an extension of my master's thesis, which is an extension of honestly a project I started as an undergraduate. So it's been a while in the making. So I didn't need a kind of flash of inspiration or something. It was already pretty well developed. And then to get funding and um, to enroll, you need a and I think this is somewhere in the UK, I mean, pretty detailed research proposal, which I find really helpful as an exercise to, to be kind of challenged to articulate very clearly what I intend to do, even if I stray from that within the first month of the project or something. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. So what is the research project that you're uh, doing for your PhD? The working title is The Metaphysics of Will in Hobbes and Spinoza. And metaphysics here, I mean, what does that mean? Perhaps the definition of will or the nature of will, perhaps also the relation of the idea of will in these thinkers with their system more broadly. So some Spinoza scholars argue that will is sort of a a central notion in Spinoza and a lot hangs on it. And perhaps that's a direction the project's going. I also sort of emphatically insisted that I did not want to write about Hobbes or Spinoza's political philosophy, because usually when these two thinkers are put together, they're put together in order to say something about democracy or the multitude or contract theory. And I'm not so interested in that. So metaphysics is also a way to say not the politics. So do you think there's an insight that the literature is missing? And what do you think that is? Yeah. So the first objection I hear when I say that I'm doing a project on will in Spinoza is um, that there's just simply no conception of will in Spinoza (laughs) because um, he puts forth a pretty like strong critique of Descartes and arguably dissolves the Cartesian notion of will into the intellect, denies that will is a faculty, denies that the will is free, and so on. So I'm arguing that sort of in addition to this critique of Descartes and this negative conception of will, he also has a positive conception of will. And Hobbes is useful for making that argument because I want to suggest that Spinoza's positive conception of will is a kind of synthesis of two Hobbesian ideas. So on the one hand, uh, will as a mechanism, um, will as an idea and um, not a faculty. And then on the other hand, the canatus, the doctrine of striving. Um, now Spinoza is is really doing something quite different with the canatus. Um, it's, not, it's not just sort of um, material. Um, there's a striving of the mind, striving of ideas, and so on. And this is really important. But 
I want to shift the focus away from the kind of Cartesian critique that I think has been explored in depth, accepted for the most part, but say something more. So Mary, I think you're the first guest that we've had on the show who's doing a project squarely in the history of philosophy. Is that right? I think that must be, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> which shouldn't be the case this many episodes in. Or at least or the history of Western philosophy. History of Western philosophy, indeed. Yeah. Um, that's right. But I guess I'd like to ask generally, in terms of doing that kind of project, what's the value in studying these older thinkers in the context of the history of Western philosophy? You know, it's so funny. I was thinking the other day about the sort of disproportionate response I have to Spinoza as opposed to like a lot of other thinkers in the history of philosophy. So the idea of like diving into the secondary literature on someone like Kant or Leibniz or Aristotle, these huge figures, I'm like, who cares? <laughs> I don't want to hear about this anymore. You know, they said what they said, like just accept them, at, you know, face value. But secondary literature in Spinoza, it's like there's, I have so much time for it. There's no hermeneutical point that's too sort of minute and small to debate at length. And so I think there's just something very specific about like this thinker that excites me. To be fair, I, I went to a sort of idiosyncratic, very small school as an undergraduate. And the faculty were for the most part, all historians of philosophy. So I sort of thought that's what philosophy is. You know, I didn't know that history of philosophy is somewhat marginalized in the discipline at large. So I had an interesting kind of fun awakening as a graduate student. But yeah, history of philosophy is just philosophy in my opinion. Yeah, that's very interesting. You had, of course, mentioned to us beforehand, Mary, that there is another topic that you wanted to talk about today, about a problem in philosophy and a problem in academia more generally, which is the problem of sexual harassment in universities. So I'd like to begin by asking, in your view, what is sexual harassment? The most general definition is probably also the legal definition, which is behavior of a sexual nature that creates a hostile work environment in a space, a hostile academic environment. I'm not sure how useful that I think it's it's too general because there are a lot of factors that are making a kind of hostile environment in philosophy. I mean, it's very competitive, it's very male, and this is not really capturing the specific issue that I'm worried about. Specific issue that I'm worried about is professors targeting their students with sexual attention, sexual behavior. Now, why is this idea of being targeted or or sort of targeting from the professor helpful? Well, you might say, surely, you know, in class, if a professor is making sort of sexual comments or creating an environment that feels very male, you know, sort of making sexist jokes or something, this is also harassment and this is wrong. And surely that's true. But I think there's very specifically predatory behavior that women students and queer students um, have to deal with and work around um, and work against. And I think that needs to stop. And uh, when did you become aware that, that sexual harassment is a problem in academia specifically? I can think of two incidents in the first year, maybe year and a half of undergrad. The first is I I was talking with another student, a woman who was slightly older than I was. I think she was had come to college a little bit later. And she was describing something that had happened with a professor, something that he had done with his body. And she was disturbed by it. And she said, you know, it almost seemed like harassment. And she used that word. And I, I just remember not believing her, like not believing that he'd done that at all. And I, I don't know what I thought, you know, if I thought she just lied or, but I, I didn't, 
because he struck me as a very respectable person. Um, I didn't grow up around academics, so I thought sort of being a professor had some respectability tied to it, um, and sexual harassment or, or just sort of yeah, uh, out of control behavior wouldn't wouldn't be part and parcel of this space that professors take in our culture and our society. But turns out it is. So a few months later, I actually was harassed by this guy as well. And so when I was processing that, I remembered her use of that word. And it was perfectly fitting. So I'm I'm grateful to her. The second incident is more, yeah, it's tied tied more to the kind of culture of the community of the apartment where I was. There's um a quite well-known professor who was well known for sleeping with students. And of course I didn't know that when I came to the school. But I remember a PhD student said to me, like this guy would be down, like to sleep to sleep with me which was a really shocking thing to hear. And also was a warning to me. I mean, I didn't take any of his classes. I never interacted with him. But this, this idea that this kind of conduct just poisons the environment, I think, really started to hit then. Absolutely. And in order to prevent these kinds of behaviours from happening, what, in your view, needs to change? Professors who engage in misconduct need to be fired. That is the most important thing that needs to change. Unfortunately, students don't control if professors are fired, and they don't control how complaints are handled. That's the job of administrators. Short of firing professors, there is one policy proposal that I think should be implemented. And this is from Brian Leiter, who wrote in the Chronicle that Professors who are found guilty of sexual harassment should have their pay docked for a certain period of time, as opposed to the common consequence now, which is to take professors off of teaching. Taking professors off of teaching might protect some students in the short term, but it burdens other people in the department with a heavier teaching load and gives the professor in question free research time that then enables him to publish more and gain more power, and in the long term, potentially gain even more access to students than he would have had otherwise. So as a pragmatic proposal, I like what Leiter has to say. So, okay, we talked a little bit about, well, what sort of needs to change in your view. What about from the perspective of, let's say, graduate students? Is there anything graduate students can do or should be doing? Jenny Saul has a nice paper titled, ironically, Stop Thinking So Much About Sexual Harassment. The thrust is that we should stop quibbling about the definition of sexual harassment and start doing something to prevent it. So stop thinking so much, start doing more. And she proposes bystander interventions like putting a drunk colleague in a cab and sending him home from an event where he's starting to wreak havoc. I think bystander interventions are a place to start. Men need to care about this issue as well. Al Jazeera did a series of podcasts and videos called Degrees of Abuse, meant to shine light on the extent of sexual misconduct by professors. And everyone listening should check it out. It's really excellent. But there was an impact episode several months after the initial series where the women involved discussed what changed after the series was broadcast. 
And what they found was that the stories shared raised awareness, but mainly among women who were already aware about the problem of sexual harassment. And that's really frustrating. Philosophy is a majority male and vastly majority white discipline and overburdened women and queer people shouldn't be left doing all the work to change the academic environment. Obviously, sexual harassment is an issue in lots of different contexts, not just in academia. But do you think there's anything special or particular to academia that makes the problem of sexual harassment worse in any way in academia? It's very hierarchical. So there are a lot of opportunities to abuse power. I think that's a big problem. Um, But also there's, um, I think, a a kind of culture-wide sort of fantasy around teachers and students sleeping together that creates difficulties for women who want to seriously go to school and not not be cast as a kind of object of desire in a game that they're not trying to play. Yeah, and I guess the just lack of accountability also is, is, a, is a problem. Is very little recourse. So on the topic of the kind of recourse that students have available to them in the face of sexual harassment and sexual abuse in the university setting, I'm aware of an article that you wrote on Medium about the website RateMyProfessor.com where you highlighted the vast number of allegations of sexual harassment and sexual abuse that have been made by students against certain professors. So I'd be interested in knowing what were your kind of motivations for writing this piece? Yeah, I, I'd been harassed by a professor and then I saw these complaints on his right, my professor's page and I was very surprised by it. So then I did some digging and found that there were like all these complaints. But right, my professors, I think it's maybe used more in the US than the UK. I don't think it's as popular in the UK, but it has a lot of problems. For one, <laughs> it itself seems to be this forum for a kind of sexual harassment. I mean, there was a, for a while a chili pepper symbol that was put next to the name of professors who students rated as hot. So you already, you know, this is not an ideal forum for complaints. Um, it's also filled with like a lot of just comments that are offensive on a few different levels. And yeah, but what was really interesting to me when I started digging around the site is the cases where there were multiple complaints about one professor from different perspectives. So you would even get like male students in the class, women who thought that other women were getting certain things or men who thought that other women were getting certain things. So yeah, it's a sort of sociological exploration. I found it interesting, but if anything, it just showed me that the institutional change is more urgent than I'd thought. Mary, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.